Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy it, and as always, let me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the murder of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe, one of New Zealand's most infamous unsolved murders. So David Harvey Crewe and Jeanette Lenore Crewe were a New Zealand farming couple who were shot to death in their home around the 17th of June of 1970. The murders led to the wrongful conviction and subsequent pardoning of another farmer who lived nearby, Arthur Allen Thomas. A royal commission set up to investigate the miscarriage of justice found that a detective had fabricated evidence and placed it at the scene of the crime. No person was ever charged with planting the evidence and the murders remain to this day unsolved. Now we get into a bit of the background. So Jeanette Crewe's father, Leonard M. Demler, was fined £10,000 for tax evasion in 1962 and had been forced to sell a half share in his farm to his wife in order to meet the liability. Jeanette married her husband, David Harvey Crewe, known as Harvey, in Auckland in 1966. In 1970, the Crewe's and their 18-month-old daughter lived on their farm at Pukakawa, Lower Waikato. Jeanette was afraid to be in the house without her husband after bizarre burglary and arson attacks, including one in which clothes were set on fire in a bedroom. Now, as I understand it, this was actually never resolved and it's never actually ever brought up in any of the documentaries or any of the stories that I've actually read about Jeanette and Harvey Crew's murder. Like, it's something that I've only ever seen mentioned in this article that I read and it was really surprising because I would have thought that if you have a bizarre murder like this one and you have bizarre happenings like a burglary and arson attacks one would think that that would be a very specific piece of information that you'd want to know and unfortunately it's only ever mentioned in this one article I've never seen it mentioned anywhere else so unfortunately I can't elaborate on that because I don't have any more information on the burglary and arson attacks At the time of her death, Jeanette was about to receive her mother's half share in the Demler farm, which adjoined the crews. The bequest to Jeanette had come after Jeanette's sister had been cut from their mother's will, and Demler had removed Jeanette as a beneficiary of his own will in retaliation, although she had no role in the original matter. Jeanette's mother had rewritten her will to beneath to Jeanette the half share in Demler's farm that he lived on. Now we get into the crime. So Harvey, 28, and Jeanette, 30, were found to be missing from their bloodstained farmhouse on the 22nd of June 1970 by Demler, who died on the 4th of November 1992, who had been asked to look in on them by an alarmed neighbour because they had not answered the telephone for days. The crew's 18-month-old daughter, Rochelle, was distraught in a cot. Demler left her home alone while he went on a farm errand, which I find both alarming and odd that he would leave a child all alone in a house that is upset and crying. The crew's had last been seen on June 17th and milk bread and newspaper deliveries on the morning of June 18th had not been collected from the letterbox. It was evident from the outset that something terrible had happened in the crew house. Blood and bodily fluids stained the chair where Harvey usually sat and pulled on the carpet beneath and there was a long drag mark down the middle of the living room floor. There was also blood on the brickwork near the front steps and in the kitchen, on the lino floor, the cupboard doors, the hot water tap and on two saucepans. Police knew they were looking at a homicide but with no trace of Harvey or Jeanette it was hard to say whether it was a murder-suicide, home invasion or something else. 
The night of the murder, Jeanette fed Rochelle and put her to bed, then served dinner, which was flounder, potatoes and peas. After eating, Harvey then moved to his armchair and Jeanette to a sofa on his left. She was knitting a jersey for her husband when the killer confronted them. Police believe Harvey was shot first from behind by someone standing in the kitchen or just outside the open louver window. The shot to the left side of his head, just above his ear, would have killed him instantly, and the killer then advanced into the lounge. It is likely that Jeanette verbally challenged the offender in some way, possibly by screaming or shouting, police would later say. Now, Jeanette was struck in the face, and then at some point her head hit the front left corner of the hearth, which would have incapacitated her and left her lying prone on the carpet. There, she was shot at close range in the right side of the head. The killer, or killers, then set about dragging the bodies out of the front door, leaving Rochelle in her bedroom just metres from the exit. The gory scene went unnoticed for five days, despite a number of people coming and going from the crew property, including the delivery man and stock agents. As the search for the missing couple continued, police spoke to neighbours, family, the community, and people who thought they had seen the crews. Neighbour Julie Priest, for example, the wife of Owen, who went to the house initially with Demla, told the cops she'd heard three gunshots on the 17th, probably after 8.30pm. No medical opinion that an infant could survive without fluids for five days is supported by any verified case of such an occurrence, although Rochelle had tissue loss suggesting she had eaten little or nothing between the 17th and 22nd of June. The degree to which she retained water during treatment indicated that she had not ingested fluids for at most 48 hours before she was found. A witness, Bruce Roddick, told police that he had seen a woman unknown to him on the property on the 19th of June. This sighting has never been independently confirmed, nor has the woman ever been positively identified. This woman was observed to be in the crew house before the crews were reported missing. The crew, Baby Rochelle, and the farm animals were fed by an unknown person. The theory fast became that she was an accomplice to the killer and snuck back to the house to care for Baby Rochelle. Demler was the leading suspect due to his propacuity and failure to raise the alarm until prompted, apparent guilty knowledge that Rochelle did not require immediate medical attention, blood of Jeanette's type on his car seat, and a scratch on his neck. Police were also told that Demler probably had access to an unregistered 22 caliber weapon. Now, I've also been told that the, the blood that was in Demler's car matched Jeanette, and also Demler didn't really have an explanation for how it got in there, because apparently from what I'm to understand, she hadn't been in his car for four months so how did Jeanette's blood or blood type because we don't know that it was her blood because DNA didn't exist back in the 1970s today for example it would be scientifically proven if it was Jeanette's blood or not I don't know if a sample was taken so we'll never really know whether Demler actually did have Jeanette's blood in his car or not if it's her blood that raises a lot more questions and answers for example what was she doing in his car bleeding but as far as I know she hadn't been in the car for four months so how did Jeanette's blood end up in Demler's car if, if she hadn't been in it for four months. I find it really interesting. The only problem is with the DNA evidence they had back then, or lack thereof, the only thing they could prove was blood type, which is a problem because different people have the same blood type. Like, my blood type is the same as someone else's. DNA is what differentiates me from someone else. Blood typing only tells you what type of blood. It, it gives a clear indication A, B, A, B, R, H, negative O. It gives you an indication of what the type is. Just because it matches to someone doesn't mean that that person is guilty because someone else with the same blood type could have come along and committed the crime. 
With DNA, it would have been a lot different, but unfortunately back then DNA did not exist, and as far as I know, there was no sample collected from Demler's car. That I'm aware of. I mean, today, if there was a sample that was collected and it was DNA tested and boom, it was shown and proved to be Jeanette's, then it makes Lynn Demler look a hell of a lot more guilty than what everyone thinks he is. I think Lynn Demler's guilty as hell. I honestly think that he had some involvement, I can't prove it, but all the evidence suggests that there was something more going on with Lynn Demler than I think anyone that's ever researched this case has ever given him credit for. I mean, Demler had more of a motive to do with the wheels and everything else than anybody else that I know of and I'm aware of in the case, but again, it's all about proving it and I can't prove it. All I can say is that his behaviour just seemed really off. I don't understand why Lynn Demler did that. He seemed to really not care about his granddaughter, didn't really care about the fact that Jeanette and Harvey were, were missing. He just kind of seemed to have taken it in his stride. His behaviour was really weird and I mean, Dimler's behaviour continued to raise suspicion. I mean, during police searches of the countryside for the crews, he shadowed on horseback without helping and persistently suggested they'd be found in water. However, the evidence against Dimler was entirely circumstantial and he strongly denied any knowledge of what had happened to his daughter and her husband. He was also said to have had an alibi for one of the arson incidences as he had been attending dinner with the crews when a fire was discovered. Now, Jeanette's body was found on August 16th, wrapped in a duvet bound with copper wire in the Waikato River, and her husband's body was retrieved upriver on the 16th of September. Now, a car axle linked to a neighbouring farmer, Arthur Allen Thomas, had apparently been used to weigh down Harvey's body and was central to police theories about the case, although it did not justify a prosecution. Now, this is where the case takes a bizarre turn in so far as the car axle is concerned. So, the axle that was used to weigh Harvey down was then identified as being a 1928 Nash Standard 6420 series front axle that had been formally fitted to a trailer made in 1959 and eventually on sold to Thomas's father, Alan. Police ascertained that in 1965, the axle was removed from the trailer in a course of upgrading it for Thomas himself. The Nash axle was returned to Thomas's brother Richard, who took it back to the family farm on Mercer Road, Pukakawa. Thomas was spoken to repeatedly by police about the axle and his association with the crews. However, the axle remains a controversial piece of evidence because of how it was found and connected back to Thomas. Because the next visit to the Thomas farm was made by Detective Johnson and Detective Parks on the 20th of October 1970. Now, Detective Parks said that he had earlier been instructed to pick up the Thomas rifle and that he understood Detective Johnston was concerned to pick up wire samples. Inspector Parks gave evidence that they collected their wire samples and that Detective Johnston then borrowed a spade and began foraging around on the tip. He said that on three trips on the farm, Detective Johnston was concerned to search only one. After only a few minutes to use Inspector Parks' words, Detective Johnston located two stub axles. One was probably partially uncovered, but the other was buried. End quote. Inspector Parks said that Mr. Johnson knew what they were and seemed quite excited by his find. He did not search the tip any further that day, and Inspector Parks was fairly agreed that it was an extraordinary piece of luck that the two stub axles, which would have become such significant exhibits, just fell into Detective Johnston's hands. It is especially odd in regards to the fact that he'd already searched the tip five days before and found nothing. Then he just happens to find them? The circumstances in which the stub axles are located is peculiar in the extreme. The problem is it's most unfortunate that Detective Johnston died and was not able to give evidence before the commission. Had he been there to give evidence, he may have been able to put forward a proper and innocent explanation of matters such as the finding of the stub axles from which the most serious of inferences can, on the face of it, be drawn. However, we may never really know the extent of his involvement in what is considered to be planting of evidence by police. 
The significance of the stub axles is that they matched either end of the axle recovered with Mr. Crew's body. On the right hand end, the stub axle had been removed by cutting the stub axle eye with the kingpin still in place. The kingpin remained attached to the axle beam. The two halves of the eye, one on the stub axle and the other on the axle beam, matched exactly. On the left hand end, a weld on the upper part of the axle beam assembly matched a weld on the stub axle. It follows that both stub axles found on Mr. Thomas's tip had clearly been connected at one stage with the axle found on Mr. Harvey Crew's body. The inference with the crown invited the jury to draw on the second trial was that both stub axles and the axle itself had been placed on the Thomas tip following the return to the farm after the conversation by Mr. Rasmussen and that the murderer had used the axle only to weigh Mr. Harvey Crew's body, leaving the two stub axles on the tip to be found by the police on the 20th of October 1970. There is considerably more evidence on the axle that than what was put before the jury at the second trial. What was fortunate was the expert evidence of Professor N.A. Malbury, the inference which the Crown sought to draw at the second trial is not justified, when one considers the whole of the evidence which is now available. Here are the following factors to take into account. Number one, the circumstances in which the stub axles were found are so peculiar as to call for an explanation. This the police were unable to provide because of Mr. Johnston's death. However, an explanation was called for in the light of the following matters. For example, Detective Johnson was first shown the tip on the 13th of October by Mr. A.A. A. Thomas, who had told him the motor vehicle parts were dumped there. Mr. Thomas would not have been so open about the matter and so cooperative with police had he been the murderer and had taken the axle from the tip a few months earlier. Another point was that Detective Johnson searched the tip for trailer parts on the 15th of October 1970 without finding the stub axles. Another point was the stub axles fell into Detective Johnson's hands on the 20th of October 1970 with extraordinary ease. And the other probably the most interesting fact of them all was no witness was able to identify the axle itself as the axle with which Mr. Shirtcliffe put into the trailer which he built. The following matter suggests that it was perhaps not the same axle. Mr. Shirtcliffe is consistently denied wheel welding the axle. If the axle found on the crew body is the one on which he had worked, then the tie rod which he bolted onto it must have been welded at a later stage. Mr. White denies, of course, that any welding was done while he owned the trailer, and Mr. Thomas says that only the left-hand studs were welded. If the axle did not come from, a tom from the Thomas trailer, therefore it would appear that welding work was carried out after it was removed from the trailer. Such work implies further use of the axle after it left Mr. Thomas's possession and is consistent with the further wear on the right hand stub axle which was already mentioned. Furthermore, welding had also been carried out on at either end of the axle beam to affix it to the stub axes on either side. It would appear that this welding also was not carried out while the trailer was in the possession of Mr. Shirtcliffe, Mr. White, or Mr. Thomas. To summarise the matter, this evidence suggests that either the axle beam and the two stub axles were used by some person after they left Mr. Thomas's possession, or alternatively, that neither the axle nor the right stub came from the trailer which Mr. Thomas owned. Mr. R. A. Closey, a vintage motorcycle enthusiast, gave evidence of searching the Thomas Farm and Company with a group of like-minded persons about three months prior to the time the murders occurred, namely in March of 1970. Despite searching the tip area closely, they located nothing but model T parts. They did not use a spade and so did not investigate what may have been under the surface of the tips. There is evidence from Mr. Parks, however, that at least one of the stub axles was partially visible in October. The closely evidence is not conclusive, but does tend to suggest that the axles and stub axles were not on the tip in March of 1970, and this confirms Peter Thomas's statement.
Now we get into the investigation and trials. So both victims had been shot to death with a 22 caliber firearm. Jeanette had broken facial bones from being struck with a blunt instrument. And Demler had been considered the main suspect. But the brutality of the assault on Jeanette and the lead investigator's belief that she had been raped led to the doubts that he was involved. On the basis that the murderer might have used a legitimately held gun, police collected and testified 64 registered 22 firearms, 3% of the total recorded as held in the Pukakawa area at the time. A forensic report on the August 19th stated that of the 64, neither Thomas's rifle nor one owned by the I family could be eliminated as a possible murder weapon, but there was insufficient evidence pointing to one or the other. Although police suggested to Thomas during an interview that his rifle was used to kill the crews, the gun was returned to him on the 8th of September. On the 27th of October, the garden at the crew house was searched for a third time and a spent cartridge case was found, apparently still lying where the murderer had left it. The case carried marks which showed that it had been ejected from Thomas's rifle and in November, Thomas was arrested and charged. Despite his wife and cousin giving him a strong alibi for June 17th, Thomas was set for trial on a charge of murdering the crews. The prosecution suggested Thomas's wife Vivian had been the woman seen at the crew's house, although she was not charged. The witness was certain Vivian Thomas, whom he knew was not the woman who he saw. The prosecution said that the motive for the murders was that Thomas had been obsessed with Jeanette, an accusation for which they provided very little evidence. A witness who did give testimony supporting the prosecution's contention that Jeanette was being pestered by Thomas was Demler himself. He was cross-examined about why he had not mentioned such obviously relevant information before the court had begun sitting. Thomas was found guilty of the murders in a 1971 trial, but the conviction was overturned on appeal. He was tried again in 1973 and again convicted. Supporters of Thomas started a campaign to bring to public attention that the key evidence against him had serious anomalies. Now we're going to talk about Arthur Allen Thomas himself. So Arthur Allen Thomas is a New Zealand man who was granted a royal pardon and compensation after being wrongfully convicted of the murders of Harvey and Jeanette Crew in June of 1970. Thomas was married and farming at a property in the Pukakawa district south of Auckland before the case went down. Following the revelation that the crucial evidence against him had been faked, Thomas was pardoned and awarded New Zealand $950,000 in compensation for his nine years in prison and loss of the use of the farm. Now we get into the campaign to overturn his convictions. So there were numerous inconsistencies in the evidence, which led to an outcry among elements in the farming community and among relatives of Thomas and his wife Vivian Thomas that led to the formation of the Arthur Thomas Retrial Committee. The report by a retired judge, Sir George McGregor, which rejected the appeal for a retrial, was also riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies. However, a report on that by journalist Terry Bell, then deputy editor of the Auckland Star Saturday edition, was rejected for publication on the grounds that it is not the role of the newspapers to attempt to try the courts. End quote. Bell then resigned and produced the booklet Bitter Hill, which is the English meaning of Pukakawa, outlining inconsistencies in the prosecution's case and the theory advanced by the retrial committee. It provided the impetus for a national campaign that eventually led to a controversial retrial where the jury was housed incommunicado with the police in a local hotel. Thomas again was convicted. Pat Booth, the assistant editor of the Auckland Star, attended the retrial and became concerned. As part of the campaign for a pardon, Booth wrote a book, Trial by Ambush, that was followed by another campaigning book, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, by British investigative author David Yellop, which was subsequently made into a film of the same name some years later. Thomas received a pardon and a Royal Commission report explicitly stated that the detectives had used ammunition and a rifle taken from his farm to fabricate false evidence against him. A 2014 police review of the case acknowledged police misconduct was probably the explanation for the key evidence against Thomas, a spent cartridge case. 
Now we get into the Royal Commission of Inquiry. So a Royal Commission of Inquiry was established, headed by retired New South Wales Justice Robert Taylor. It declared Thomas to have been wrongfully charged and convicted and found that among other improprieties, police had planted a 22 caliber rifle cartridge case in the garden of the house in which the murders were committed. The case was found four months and ten days after the area had already been subjected to one of the most intensive police searches ever undertaken. The cartridge case was said to have come from a rifle belonging to Thomas. However, the police tested only 64 rifles in an area where this weapon was common and found that two, including the one belonging to Thomas, could have fired the cartridge case found in the garden. That was the link to the deaths of the crews, although it was later admitted that the case was clean and uncorroded when it was found. As such, the condition of the case was inconsistent with having lain in the garden exposed to weather and dirt for more than four months. The commission report said, and I quote, Mr. Hutton and Mr. Lynn Johnston planted the shell case, and they did so to manufacture evidence that Mr. Thomas's rifle had been used for the killings, end quote. The Solicitor General recommended against prosecuting the officers because of insufficient evidence and an independent review of the 2014 police review by David P. H. Jones QC, released on the 30th of July 2014, concluded, and I quote, In my view, there was sufficient evidence for a prosecution to have been taken against Bruce Hutton based on the available material, end quote. Now we get into subsequent events. So, in 2009, Arthur Allen Thomas travelled to Christchurch to support David Bain, who also had his criminal convictions against him overturned. That case is one of which I will cover in a later podcast episode. In 2010, he collaborated with investigative journalist Ian Wishart on the book Arthur Allen Thomas, where he, for the first time, gave his perspective on his life from before the murders to the present. The two detectives who planted the shell had helped that helped convict Thomas are now dead. Johnston died in 1978 and Bruce Hutton, who was 83 years old, died in Middlemore Hospital in April of 2013. At Hutton's funeral, Deputy Commissioner Mike Bush praised Mr. Hutton and said he was known for having integrity beyond reproach. An editorial in the New Zealand Herald said, and I quote, that was clearly absurd. It was also an unthinking or calculated insult to Mr. Thomas, who spent nine years in prison before being pardoned. End quote. Thomas, then aged 75, responded by saying that police were in engaged in a blatant cover-up. A police review of the original investigation at a cost of $400,000 to New Zealand taxpayers, released in July of 2014, cleared all other suspects and implied that Arthur Allen Thomas remained a police suspect. The independent review by David P.H. Jones QC concluded that it does not appear that there was any real inquiry by the 1970 investigation team into any persons other than Arthur Thomas. End quote. In late 2019, Thomas, then aged 81, faced one charge of rape and four of indecent assault against two women. He previously pleaded not guilty and elected trial by jury. His case was called at the Manukau District Court, where he was excused from attending. Judge Charles Blackie lifted suppression orders that previously prevented the media from reporting anything about the case. On the 15th of December 2020, at the Papakura District Court, Thomas's lawyers argued that the charges be dismissed. Judge John Bergsig suppressed arguments details of the hearing out of fair trial interests. The trial opened on the 14th of June 2021 at the Manukau District Court with Aaron Perkins for the Crown and Mary Dyerberg QC for the defence. Judge John Bursing presided. Thomas was now aged 83 and one complainant alleged she was raped and indecently assaulted. The other alleged she was indecently assaulted three times. Both witnesses said there were others present when some of the alleged offending took place. 
A third witness claimed Thomas had encouraged him to participate in the alleged acts. Full trial details were heavily suppressed and the defense claimed the charges were fabricated and motivated by money. Thomas's former solicitor Chris Reed told the court he organized a legal meeting on behalf of Thomas with the complainants and their husbands. Among those presents were Reed's cousin, Thomas's then lawyer Peter Williams and former Prime Minister David Lang. Reed testified that the complainants made demands for Thomas to pay the money. If he didn't, they were going to complain to the police about sexual abuse of one sort or another, end quote. Now, Reed said Williams told the complainants the meeting had to take place according to law. The threat could have constituted extortion and recommended the complainants get independent legal advice. According to Reed, Lang also advised the complainants to go to the police. Three other witnesses testified for the defense, including Thomas's second wife, and Thomas himself did not testify. In a closing address, Dyberg called the man's testimony the stuff of fantasy. He himself could not rely upon his own memory. She said the two women had not told the truth and it's gotten out of control. In his closing address, Perkins said, it is far-fetched in the extreme that two women would come along and commit perjury, end quote. In summing up, Judge Bursing told the jury that each charge must be considered separately, with a focus on the evidence specific to each one. But caution was required because the passage of time meant memories of some witnesses may have faded, making it impossible to check some of the witnesses' testimony, and also causing Thomas to lose the ability to call witnesses who could support his defense. The jury failed to reach a verdict and was discharged on the 28th of June of 2021. On October 14th of 2021, Crown Prosecutor Charlie Piho told the Manukau District Court the Crown wished to continue with the prosecution. Judge Mina Weripori set a trial date for November of 2022. A campaign led in part by Pat Booth of the Auckland Star was largely responsible for getting Thomas released with a pardon. Campaigners said forensic work by Dr. Jim Sprott had shown that the cartridge case had been planted at the scene and that its method of construction identified it as being from a batch that could not have contained the number eight bullets recovered from the victims. Following David Yallop's book about the case Beyond Reasonable Doubt, Thomas was pardoned by Governor-General Keith Holyoke on the recommendation of Prime Minister Robert Muldoon. Thomas was released after serving nine years in prison and he was paid New Zealand $950,000 compensation for his time in jail and loss of the use of his farm. A Royal Commission of Inquiry was ordered to review the wrongful conviction of Thomas and reported to the Governor-General in November of 1980. The Commission has found that the spent cartridge case from Thomas's gun, Exhibit 350, had not been left by the murderer but had been created weeks later by police using his impounded gun and ammunition, then planted at the Crewe farmhouse. The Commission's report implicated Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton and Detective Sergeant Lenrick Johnson in police misconduct and found that the prosecution of Thomas for the murders had been unjustified. Astonishingly, despite the commission describing the conduct of Hutton and Johnson as an unspeakable outrage, the New Zealand police never laid charges against any officer involved in the investigation and prosecution of Thomas. Johnston died in 1978 and Hutton died in 2013. The case was made into the docudrama feature film Beyond Reasonable Doubt in 1980. There was, however, one final O. Henry twist in this case that came completely out of nowhere and a second suspicious death took place. So, one of New Zealand's richest men was named as a possible suspect in the 1970 crew murders that saw Pukakawa farmer Arthur Allen Thomas convicted but later pardoned for, and another shock development, the lead detective on the case, was implicated as the man who married, then murdered, the woman who fed baby Rochelle Crew. 
Saturday's New Zealand Herald carried the story of a Scrooge who gave his $122 million fortune to the Catholic Church because of a long-standing grudge against his stepchildren. What few knew is that the Scrooge in question, the late Harold Plumley, was once named as a potential suspect in the crew murders, and his brother-in-law was none other than Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton, the police officer who locked up Arthur Allen Thomas using planted evidence to get the conviction. In a nutshell, the Plumley family had farmed land around Mangaree for generations, but as a young man, Harold Plumley ended up disinherited of virtually everything, except the few paddocks left to him in East Tamanaki by his mother, while his sister Mary Plumley inherited virtually all of the family estate. Harold Plumley eked out a living in the Pukekawa district selling agricultural equipment to farmers. At the same time, his wealthy sister Mary was captured in the eye of a married Otahuhu police officer Bruce Hutton. Former colleagues of Harold Plumley approached Investigate magazine more than a decade ago, with bombshell allegations that Plumley had been sexually rebuffed by a Pukekawa woman he referred to as G-Net, spelt G-E-E-N-E-T, and that he was going to get her. That conversation took place some months before Jeanette and Harvey Crew's bloodstained home was found empty in June of 1970, except for baby Rochelle in a cot. As the witnesses tell the story, they speculate that Harold Plumley may have killed the Crews, but his strong sense of Catholic guilt wouldn't allow him to kill the child. Instead, Sister Mary Plumley was roped in to feed baby Rochelle while she was dating Bruce Hutton. Investigate magazine was then contacted by an anonymous source who claimed that they had some very interesting information to share on the condition that their identity remained confidential as they still feared of their life and repercussions. This person stated, and I quote, I have had information since 1970 that I have been far too frightened to release. I made an effort to inform the police in 1970 and spoke to a Sergeant Johnston, I shall never forget his name, and outlined what I knew about some people that should be interviewed. Imagine my surprise when he went right off the rails and told me that if I ever rang the police with that information again or made any attempt to have it made known then I would be the next bastard found in the river. Further, now he had my name, I was to shut my bloody mouth forever over this matter. Sergeant Johnston is now dead, however with the information that I have I am still a threat because all of his buddies are not dead. The main threat is Bruce Hutton and what I believe I know about him could see him jailed for the rest of his miserable life. I approached Mr. John Carter, our local MP, about 18 months ago, around the end of 2006 or start of 2007, and he has been made aware of a snippet of my information. It was enough for him to send me the name of a certain police district commander. However, I will not divulge any information unless I am 100% assured that anything I disclose will be given absolute confidentiality and my name, etc., is to also be 100% confidential, something I was not given by the police commander at the time. I still have genuine concerns for my safety, end quote. The witness says he came to know Plumley and his blonde-haired sister through their mutual work in the farming sector covering the greater South Auckland and North Waikato areas. At one of their meetings, the man named as a new person of interest in the Harvey and Jeanette Crew homicide investigation confided about how the farmer's wives often made advances towards him when their husbands were out working on the farms when he called and he seemed happy to be able to talk or boast about this. Quote, However, on one of my last visits, he was very agitated over some woman by the name I thought sounded like Jeanette. He pronounced it as Jeanette. Net, who was not happy with him for some unknown reason and had evidently threatened to tell her husband about that matter. This obviously infuriated Plumley as he stated that a woman like her could ruin his business and his reputation and if it became public it would cause further alienation of his relations that I had already since were not great between himself and his family and he wouldn't let that happen. 
Plumley went on to mention that he would finally get her, I presume from past discussions that he meant he would win her over. However, at this time it was of no concern of mine, and it appeared to me that he was letting this matter consume him, and the rejection of his advances, whatever they may have been, were definitely not appreciated. End quote. The witness described Harold Plumley as a man quick to anger with a very vehement nature and prone to violent verbal outbursts, although surprisingly he never swore. Quote, although he discussed his farming meetings and meeting farmers' wives openly to me, I cannot recall him swearing and can't remember him doing so during any of his conversations with me, and I thought that was rather odd at the time given the nature of his ramblings. End quote. The witness said he paid no further attention to the man's exploits until Jeanette and Harvey Crew were found to have been murdered at their farm in June 1970, a little while later. Quote, However, I was more than surprised to learn that Arthur Allen Thomas had been charged with the murders. I had met briefly with Mr. Thomas on two occasions, once in Warkworth when I visited a neighbour of his father's, and once when I called at his farm. On each of these meetings, although brief, I found Mr. Thomas to be extremely polite and quietly spoken man, and if anything a little naive, but in no way would I have ever expected him to be a man capable of murder. As the information started to roll in over this case, it was public knowledge that a blonde woman was seen at the crew's house, and it was openly reported that she had possibly been the person who fed the baby Rochelle. Who was she? Well, this has been one of the most asked questions and one of the conundrums of this most infamous murder mystery. The 18-month-old baby was found in her cot at the crew's farm, and there was evidence that she had been fed and had her nappies changed during that time. Harold Plumley's comment to me about a woman named Jeanette, threatening to tell her husband about some matter, came chillingly back to me especially due to the fact that I'd seen his previous violent verbal outbursts, end quote. The man's sister, a woman who dotted on her brother despite his status as black sheep of the family, was fair-haired. The witness who knew her personally as well has exceptionally good reason to believe the woman agreed to help her brother after the fact because of the shame it would bring to their prominent family name. He believes the sister was undoubtedly the woman who fed baby Rochelle Crew and who has never been identified by police, at least publicly. Quote, Having thought about this matter, the witness said, I then phoned the police. I asked to speak to the senior officer in charge, and I relayed my suspicions to him and the names I had. Instead of showing any interest, I was shouted at over the phone, told to never ring the fucking police again about this matter, and if you do, you'll be the next fucking person to be found in the river. I was also told that the police knew who the murderer was, and to butt out completely or else. End quote. Because of this, the witness claimed he was shit scared to say or do anything more, which is why it took him 38 years to come forward with the information. There's also another wrinkle to the story that no one has ever gotten to the bottom of, although various people have tried. Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton married Mary Plumley, the woman the witness speculates fed baby Rochelle, putting him within a heartbeat of the Plumley family millions if she died. Serendipitously, on February 15th of 1985, that moment arrived. You see, Mary and Bruce Hutton were visiting close friends in, I'm going to butcher this name, Wutayanga, one of whom was her doctor. Mary advised she was going inside to wash sea salt out of her hair. A while later, Bruce Hutton told the inquest the doctor's wife, Anne Calloway, found 53-year-old Mary naked and unresponsive, curled up in a bath with only one and a half inches or four centimeters of water in it. The plug was in and the tap was turned off. Now, who runs a four centimeter deep bath to wash their hair? That is a question that has never been credibly answered. Bruce Hutton told the coroner, and I quote, Gavin and I ran inside and found Mary curled up in the bath. We got her out and Gavin started external massage and I did the mouth to mouth. It was no use as she had already gone. End quote. 
Her family doctor, Gavin Calloway, pointedly provided absolutely no evidence to the coroner's inquest beyond his signature on the 15th of the 2nd 85 death certificate, where he stated he had last seen Mary alive at 14.20 that afternoon and she was in good health. There was no witness statement corroborating Hutton's version of events describing the scene they found or the resuscitation efforts. Nothing. Nor was there a witness statement from Anne Calloway, purportedly the woman who discovered the body. Which is bizarre to me. You have all these people who were there at the time this woman died under extremely bizarre and mysterious circumstances and there are no statements made? Perhaps his evidential silence was deliberate given what we now know. Better to say nothing than lie on oath. After all, who could Callaway have turned to? The police? Bruce Hutton was the police. A man so revered that police commissioner Mike Bush was still singing Hutton's praises at his 2013 funeral. A Waikato hospital pathologist was the only medic to testify, ruling Mary had suffered a heart attack, loss of consciousness, and drowned. Even though the autopsy found no water in the lungs to corroborate the drowning in an inch of water claim. Again, who climbs into a four centimeter deep bath, turns off the tap, assumes the fetal position, then drowns, simultaneously causing myocardial ischemic event, yet without inhaling the water? The autopsy found no external evidence of violence or external injury, and that's odd because if a naked woman was generally standing in an inch of bath water and kneeled over with a heart attack, you would expect the falling body to collide with the taps or the side of the bath on the way down, yet there was not a mark on her. Bruce Hutton was the sole heir of Mary's fortune, which was around $10 million in today's money. One man who wasn't buying the death by drowning claim was Harold Plumley himself. Quote, he killed her to get his hands on the money. He manipulated the will. He was only after her coin. End quote. Intriguingly, the majority of bath electrocutions leave no visible marks, and pathologists have difficulty distinguishing them from ordinary heart attacks. Yet, inexplicably, the implausibility of drowning in four centimeters of water, even though the lungs were found to be dry, doesn't seem to have crossed the mind of the pathologist examining Mary Hutton's body, nor does the heart damage she found that is now regarded as a biomarker of electrocution. But then again, they didn't know as much back in 1985, and neither the family doctor whose home the tragedy occurred at, nor Mary's former police officer husband, mentioned anything about a hairdryer or a heater being found in the bath, so the pathologist had no reason to suspect foul play. Why wasn't there a police investigation? Well, maybe there was. Arthur Allen Thomas's brother Des stated in 2008 that a Pukekohe man who he knew had contacted him at one point to tell him Bruce Hutton had killed Mary Plumley. Quote, he rang me up and told me that Hutton had thrown an electric heater in her bath. This fellow that told me, he's got cops that he's friendly with, and they told him. End quote. Des Thomas says he told TVNZ Sunday program of the Hutton allegations, but nothing ever eventuated. In a 2008 phone interview, Harold Plumley stated that he and Bruce Hutton had antagonism towards each other, caused by Hutton's relationship with Mary, and he believed that was why police never questioned him about the crew murders. Quote, I didn't have anything to do with it. Didn't know them, although I did drive past their, family, their farm every day at the time. Still do occasionally, because of my work as a farm consultant. End quote. In a later phone interview, despite initially saying he didn't know them, Plumley would emphatically describe Harvey Crew as just a bum, no money, a pipsqueak, cattle agent who married into money. And when asked if the Crew farm was a dairy or dry stock, his answer was instant dry stock. But Plumley's next revelation was earth shattering. Quote, I know what led Mary and Hutton going away on that break in Waitanga. Our father told me after her death. He said that four, th four days beforehand, Mary came to him and said, I'm very worried. 
dad explained that she and Hutton had been really rowing. Father said she told him, it's got to end, it's got to end, and when I come back, I'm going to the lawyers. i got to get rid of him, I've got to get him out. That was absolutely clear cut. That I've given you gospel truth, Plumley told Investigate Magazine. So here's the lie of the lie of the land. Days before her mysterious drowning in just over one inch of bathwater, which I don't believe at all, Melthy Hiraness, Mary Plumley Hutton, told her father she was planning to divorce former Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton. She never got to see a lawyer, and she never survived the weekend getaway where she planned to thrash things out. Which I find extremely interesting that she died under such odd circumstances and it's not being probably looked into. The money motive is what strikes me as being the reason she died, because had she divorced him, he would have lost the money. But if she dies and it's ruled anything other than murder or manslaughter, he'd get the money no questions asked, provided he wasn't accused or suspected in her murder. Plumley says he tried to talk to Mary's Fijian maid Mayara after the death, but found himself hauled in for questioning by Otahuhu's CIB for harassment. Quote, I really gave Detective Mitford Burgess a lashing in front of the whole CIB, Plumley recalled. But that's what happened. Hutton found out I was asking questions and suddenly the police were investigating me. End quote. Again, being a cop and one that was highly respected gave Cutton an advantage. This is why I believe he was never properly looked into because no one wanted to think Top Cop was a killer or thought he was capable of being one. Plumley got the last laugh, however, while Hutton inherited Mary Plumley's estate, which is worth around $10 million in today's money, left to her by her father. Harold Plumley's paddock in Ormiston Road, East Tamanaki, given to him by his mother, was sold to Lion Breweries for $66 million in 2007 as a site of its NZ headquarters. By the time he died in 2016, Plumley's fortune had ballooned to $122 million, which he bequeathed to the Catholic Church in New Zealand's biggest ever charitable donation. Do I believe Harold Plumley killed the crews? Although Plumley's former colleagues believed it and Plumley knew more about the crews than he originally let on, there's insufficient evidence to say whether he did or he didn't. As for Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton, the top cop who conspired to plant evidence to gain a conviction in the crew murders, the man of whom police bosses famously remarked at his 2013 funeral, his integrity is beyond reproach, a new stain now clouds his legacy. Did he murder his own wife to seize her fortune? Well... We, sadly, may never really know the answer to that question. Now we come to the status of the case. So, in 2014, an official police review of the investigation into the homicides at a cost of $400,000 to New Zealand taxpayers said that evidence available in the murder of the crews was insufficient for any pros new prosecution. The review acknowledged that a key prosecution exhibit in the trials had been fabricated by detectives, but did not appear to accept that they could have been on the wrong track. The review implied that the crew's daughter had not ingested any fluids between the 17th and 22nd of June, and said a witness had been mistaken in thinking he had seen a woman on the farm during that period. The review did however rule out Demler having been the killer and Rochelle Crew expressed satisfaction that a police review of evidence had cleared her deceased grandfather of involvement in the murders. The case to this day remains unsolved. The crew murders continued to divide the district into two feuding camps without apparent closure. Pukakawa's water supply contractor Des Thomas, brother of Arthur, continues to investigate for the murders a local man named Farmer X. The release in July of 2014 of a police report on the murders cleared suspects the late Lynn Demler, father of Jeanette, and his second wife after the murders, Norma Demler. The report implied Arthur Thomas remains a suspect to the police, and the police report also said the cartridge case that incriminated Arthur Ellen Thomas may have been fabricated evidence. The murder house is still occupied. 
In 2010, Rochelle Crew, then in her 40s, contacted police and raised concerns about the initial investigation, asking what, if any further investigative action had been taken after Thomas was pardoned to identify the person who gunned down her parents. She also demanded answers around why evidence planting cops Hutton and Johnston had not been prosecuted. In 2014, after almost four years of work, the review team released their final report to the public. They said no new evidence had come to light to implicate any specific person as being responsible for the double murder, or provided a basis for initiating further inquiries. Though a review team could not pin the blame on anyone, they said the killer was someone who had access to the items from the Thomas farm, and they were firm on the fact that Thomas's firearm was most likely to have fired the fatal bullets. But a reinvestigation was not warranted. Police also acknowledged shortcomings in the murder investigation and, for the first time ever, admitted that officers fabricated evidence against Thomas. Though they felt the 1970 police investigation team did a lot of things correctly, it was also conceded there were numerous balls dropped, including failing to corroborate some alibis, follow up on vehicle sightings, secure crime scene exhibits and evidence, and investigate people of interest connected to the Thomas farm. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remains unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major, major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. The Thames Torso Murderers, often called the Thames Mysteries or the Embankment Murders, was a series of unsolved murders which occurred in London, England from 1887 to 1889.